It is time for Legally Speaking here on CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, joining us as always. Good morning, Michael. How are you? Uh, Good morning. Great to be here. I can't can't complain at all. (laughs) Excellent. So what's on the docket for today? Well, I think the first uh, case is a good uh, cautionary uh, tale, uh, given uh, the uh, upcoming uh, election in B.C. Counting Uh, ballots. Counting ballots, indeed. You you would think that that would be straightforward. What could possibly go wrong? Just uh, add them all up, and there you are. Uh, But this is a decision that just came out that involved exactly that, an issue of counting ballots. Uh, In this case, it was counting ballots for the Sean Yee Benevolent Association of Canada. Uh, that's an association that uh, does uh, community work. They raise money for the United Way uh, uh, and other uh, projects. It's a sort of social club as well, so they do positive things in the community. Um, and uh, that organization has about a 1,000 members, uh, and uh, they uh, had in 2018 uh, an election to determine who was going to be on the board of directors of one of the parts of that uh, association. There were two different uh, sort of uh, groups of people in the association that were vying for spots to be a, a director. 25 people were being elected. People voted. Uh, and then they sat down to start counting ballots, something we're going to be doing soon in British Columbia, hopefully for lots more than 1,000 people. Yes. Um, and uh, so they had designed this process to count ballots where they had several people uh, working on it. Ballots would be Uh, opened up, people would uh, look at them, read out the name, show it to the other uh, people that were participating in the process. Uh, They'd be tallied up on a whiteboard, signed by an election official, and you would think, you know, this can't be that uh, complicated. What could go wrong here? Well, let me tell you. Um, (laughs) First of all, uh, there were a number of ballots uh, which had uh, various oddities uh, on them. (laughs) Oddities, Uh, I like that. Oddities, that's right, oddities. So they included things like uh, the instructions on the ballot indicated to the list of possible names to put tick marks in boxes next to the candidates you were voting for. Well, uh, somebody voted for 26 candidates when they could only vote for 25. That mm. obviously doesn't work. Um, somebody was using a mixture of tick marks and X's. Well, one person uh, used a bunch of tick marks, tick marks and then wrote the number 11 next to somebody. <laughs> Um, uh, and so as these things were sort of uh, progressing, one of these ballots got pulled out, and there was a dispute about whether it should be counted. Uh, and then at that time, one of the people involved stood up to go use the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Well, he was not using the bathroom. The table got bumped. Oh, water no. got spilled. Oh, no. Uh, and then a dispute arose about, well, what happened to that ballot that was disputed? Is it written up on the whiteboard? Some people thought that it had been written on the whiteboard and put in the pile of counted ballots. Somebody else thought it was put under the microphone. It was unclear whether it was in the tally or not. Um, And so with that state of uh, disarray, uh, the group doing this, all volunteers, of course, uh, decided to give a pause and go for dinner. (laughs) So they, uh, they decided eventually, well, there's some dispute here. They should put all the ballots into a ballot box, seal it up with tape, uh, and then a couple of the election uh, volunteers would sign their names on the tape to show that it was sealed. They went for dinner, uh, and then later they thought, okay, well, now let's get into that. Maybe we should just recount the number of ballots to resolve the dispute about whether this disputed one was counted and written on the whiteboard or was under the microphone when the water got spilled. It was just a disagreement about whether it got counted. And it mattered because of the how close the vote was. Wow. Well, unfortunately, by the time they got back to doing that, somebody had opened the ballot box. The tape was no longer sealed. Oh, no. So now what? <laughs> well, 
I'll tell you what, uh, you have no board of directors from 2018 through to uh, very recently uh, when this case went to the B.C. Supreme Court, uh, and there is authority uh, under the Societies Act uh, for a judge to resolve these kind of problems. And so the judge was charged with affidavit evidence from 13 people who were present. Uh, they'd been cross-examined, uh, you know, uh, transcripts of that was all provided. And as, you know, with human memory, of course, people have different memories of exactly what happened. Some yes. people thought the disputed ballot was on the whiteboard. Other people thought it wasn't. Some people thought it was put in the counted pile. Other people thought not. Uh, there's just a legitimate, you know, understandable, <laughs> different perceptions of what exactly went on here. And then the judge was also charged with, well, what do you do with all these various irregular ballots? What do you do with people who have ticked things off on the other side, written the number 11, used a combination of different symbols? What does that mean? Does the X mean I don't like this person? The tick mark means, yeah, that person's great. Um, what do these people all mean? And so the judge, to a large extent, um, sort of relied upon the decisions made by the volunteers that day, because societies are able to formulate their own election process, okay. as long as it's something they can possibly comply with. So as far as possible, the judge uh, tried to uh, defer to the decisions that had been made uh, by the volunteers when they were looking at at least the ballots uh, <laughs> that uh, they knew had been counted or not counted. So that was the general approach. But um, finally, uh, the judge had to make a, a determination about what should be done uh, and he concluded that he was satisfied that the disputed ballot was included in the tally on the whiteboard uh, before the members left for dinner. <laughs> uh, and so <laughs> that determined the outcome of the election. And so I guess the takeaways for everyone are, please read very carefully the instructions on your ballot. Don't use tick marks, tick marks, stars, circling things, writing yes, no, or, you know, whatever on it. Make sure you carefully follow the instructions. Um, I am still worried about quite what's going to come of the uh, written-in uh, ballots which yes. distributed for mail-in. Hopefully people uh, you know, read carefully the instructions and write in either the name of the candidate or the name of the party and not the leader or something else in there. Yes. Um, so you know, th this is an example, uh, this uh, Benevolent Society, of where you know, the instructions just require you to tick things off uh, and yet you see all of these uh, sort of you know, human <laughs> derivations of, uh, you know, decision-making and trying to indicate various things. So um, hopefully people get it right and you both vote and vote in a way that gets your vote counted. So the good news for the Benevolent Association is they've now got a, uh, a board of directors and they can carry on with their uh, good work doing uh, cultural activities and raising money for the United Way. It also looks like, uh, according to the website, the... Uh, uh, engage in things like uh, provide a venue for table tennis and uh, Chinese opera, lion dancing. Sounds like a lot of fun. So. And everyone can benefit <laughs> from their very lengthy experience in resolving this matter. That's right. It's a uh, timely advice for everyone in terms of how to both fill out ballots and count them up in a, in a way uh, and try not to spill water. Absolutely. Let's take our first break. Michael Mulligan will continue offering us the benefit of his analysis and insight. Legally Speaking continues right after this. Michael Mulligan with Legally Speaking. As we continue, that process you've just described to us will likely be replicated hundreds of thousands of times, although hopefully without the complications that accompany the scenario you described. 
That's right. Let's hope there's a minimum of water spills and uh, the use of uh, numbers to indicate who you wish to vote for in the in the general election. Absolutely. But, uh, you give a large enough number and something's going to come up, right? Yeah. Uh, an acquittal, I'm reading, in our next story here, on a charge of attempted murder involving a shooting of a transit police officer in the arm and the hand. What are the details of this matter? Yes, indeed. So this was a, uh, a very uh, unfortunate case, uh, although I must say, uh, ultimately, uh, uh, everyone survived, so that was good news. Uh, the background here was that uh, in Vancouver, a couple of transit police who were uh, wearing uh, sort of uh, civilian clothing but had their badges out uh, were looking around for sort of suspicious people at a SkyTrain, in the SkyTrain area. Uh, and uh, they spotted a fellow, a Mr. Glasgow, uh, who, when they saw him, seemed to walk away from them or try to get away from them. And so they thought that suspicious, and they wanted to find out why he was walking away from them. So they began to pursue him, and he ran up into a SkyTrain station, uh, took off a sweatshirt that he was wearing, and sat down on a bench, I guess, hoping to not be seen. Uh, the officers were walking towards the man, and when they got close to him, uh, without warning, he pulled a handgun out from his waistband and fired twice, hitting uh, one of the officers in the arm and the hand. And the man then began to run away past the officers. The officer who had been hit, uh, this could have been bad too, mm -hmm. pulled out a handgun and began firing at the man as he was running away, explaining they thought that uh, he might uh, harm somebody else, so they needed to try to immobilize him. Mm -hmm. uh, the officer missed. Uh, the man was eventually uh, arrested five days later. Uh, and as a result of DNA and video, there wasn't really an issue that the man had done this. Now, he was charged with a number of things, various uh, offenses involving causing danger by discharging a firearm, um, uh, you know, possessing a restricted firearm, uh, discharging it in a reckless way, all various things. But he was also charged with attempted murder. And that was the issue at his trial. He didn't take any issue with the other things, acknowledged that he had done all of the other various things. But attempted murder is an interesting charge. Attempted murder requires the Crown to prove, beyond a reasonable doubt, that the accused person intended to kill uh, the person uh, with whom he's charged with attempted to be attempted to murder. Uh, and that's a little different from what would be required to convict somebody of murder. Right, if somebody yes. is actually killed, um, you can be convicted of murder if you intend to kill somebody, um, or you could also be convicted of murder if you mean to cause bodily harm to the person that you know is likely to cause their death, mm -hmm. and you're reckless about whether death ensues or not. And so, for example, had the officer died who was hit, uh, the assessment for usually a jury would be either did you intend to kill the police officer or uh, did you mean to cause bodily harm you knew was likely to cause the person's death and were reckless about whether they died or not? But that's a little different. And so the other interesting element of this case is that the man chose to testify. Uh, and he testified that uh, he was on parole, uh, that he had started living with his girlfriend rather than at the halfway house he was supposed to be living at, that he didn't intend to kill the police officer. He was just trying to escape. Um, and... The judge, when analyzing that, looked at a number of things, including the fact that uh, the uh, man had his gun out and ran past the police officers, didn't shoot at him again, that he was the police officer was hit in the hand and arm rather than uh, in the 
uh, sort of center of mass, for example. Mm-hmm. It took that to be perhaps an indication that he was not being, not trying to hit him in a particular place or shooting him again as he ran past him. Uh, and on the basis of all of that, uh, the judge concluded that there was a reasonable doubt about whether the shooter intended to, in fact, kill the police officer as opposed to, uh, on his evidence, escape uh, from uh, the police officer by shooting in this fashion. What is the standard for bodily harm with respect to intent as opposed to just harm? Uh, well, the language used is causing bodily harm that you know is likely to cause death or reckless as to whether death ensues. Okay. And uh, there's actually some, uh, not surprising, I don't think, case law surrounding what inference you might draw if somebody, you know, shoots somebody, let's say, at close range with a handgun yeah. into some vital part of their body. Uh, and there's good authority, which I think most people would find to be common sense, which would say, you know, if there's evidence that somebody fires a gun at close range into a vital part of somebody else's body, yeah. in the absence of some explanation, the only rational inference you could draw would be that you were intending to kill the person, yeah. right? If you're right there and you shoot the person in the head or you know, heart or something, well, what else could you have intended uh, by doing that, absent some other compelling explanation for it? Yes. But, okay. you know, the, the here, the differences were uh, elements of, first of all, where the officer was shot, how the person did it. It was all on video, in fact. So you hmm. could see uh, what happened. Um, and so uh, because of the particular elements, including the fact that the person, the accused, didn't shoot the officer in the you know, head or chest, didn't, when he ran past him, shoot him again, um, uh, and his evidence about what he was trying to do, escape rather than try to kill the police officer, based on all of those things, the judge had a reasonable doubt about whether the person actually had the intent to kill the police officer. And hmm. so on that basis, while he was convicted of various other very serious firearms offenses and will no doubt spend a very long period of time in jail, uh, he was not convicted of the uh, attempted murder uh, case uh, because uh, that one requires the actual intent to kill, uh, not uh, something less than that. And here, based on both that person's evidence and those that fact pattern, much of which was on video, uh, the judge had a doubt about whether that's what the person was actually trying to do. Interesting. Well, there it is. Attempted murder requires not just a very serious assault. You have to actually prove what the person meant to do. You and I have discussed family law and the specific emotional stakes that can often be at play in litigation with respect to it. I would suspect that that is made even more um, of a potentially complicating factor when it involves inheritances and estates. I'm reading here, nothing brings out the worst in people like an estate dispute in our next story. That, I think that's about true, right? You, you see just the most atrocious behavior people engage in uh, when they're fighting over things like that. Uh, th- this particular case was an appeal, uh, and the, the underlying issue was the uh, the daughter of the uh, her uh, her father passed away. The father had had a common law spouse uh, uh, of many years, and the common law spouse and the father of the person who was appealing uh, lived in a house together. Um, the house uh, was uh, registered in uh, as joint in a joint tenancy, which meant that when the appellant's father passed away, uh, the valley, the house was automatically transferred to his longtime common law spouse, rather than becoming part of the estate. So it meant that the daughter didn't get uh, to share in the uh, value of her late father's home. That was the underlying. 
issue. Um, and uh, that proceeded off to trial, which had uh, very much uh, uh, issues surrounding uh, credibility, whether various uh, claims being made could be believed. Uh, the claim of the daughter was that uh, there was a what's called a trust or an implied trust imposed on the value of the home uh, because of money allegedly given to the father to contribute to the cost of the home. That was the basics of the claim. Mm-hmm. Um, the judge didn't accept that uh, and found that the longtime common law uh, partner of the deceased father uh, was entitled to the home. She's, she was 83 at the time of the uh, trial, so she could keep living there. Uh, but the daughter was not satisfied with that uh, outcome, uh, and uh, after the initial trial ended, the daughter wound up being given a computer which belonged to her father. The daughter plugged the computer in, attached it to the Internet, and it downloaded a bunch of email. One of the emails the daughter pointed to saying, Aha, look, uh, this shows that uh, on some collateral point, uh, the, um, the, uh, her father's partner was not truthful. Right? That was the yes. essence of it. Yes. Um, and so she went back to court trying to persuade the judge, hey, you should throw the case out or reopen it. Uh, this is really important, fresh evidence. Uh, the judge did not accept that, found that the email did not show that the person was dishonest, uh, and, but the daughter was unprepared to accept that. Right, And that's how the matter wound up off in the Court of Appeal. The daughter, however, uh, started making representations both in her written argument to the Court of Appeal and what she said orally in court, um, although these days that would be by Zoom, I should say, mm-hmm. um, saying that uh, this showed that the, um, uh, the partner of her late father uh, had perjured herself uh, and that the lawyer had been involved with the perjury and knew about it claims which just weren't supported by this the email that she had. Yes. Um, and so the Court of Appeal uh, not only uh, dismissed her appeal, saying that, uh, no, the trial judge had acted properly, this wasn't uh, something that showed what the daughter was claiming, uh, but the Court of Appeal then went on to deal with uh, the issue of costs, which we've talked about before. Yes. Uh, and the general idea is that, uh, you know, a uh, party who is successful is going to have the party who's unsuccessful pay part of their legal expenses. The purpose of that is to encourage people to settle their claims out of court, right, where possible. Yes. Here, however, uh, the Court of Appeal did more than simply award sort of ordinary costs, which would be a uh, relatively small portion of your actual expenses going to court, uh, and they instead uh, imposed special costs, which are higher than that. And in so doing, they talked about um, what the daughter had done here, uh, in terms of making claims of perjury uh, and intentional lying, which was just not supported by uh, the evidence that she had. Um, and the Court of Appeal uh, pointed out that making those kind of claims, like alleging somebody is dishonest and perjuring themselves, um, is, they described it as reprehensible conduct, right? You, you, it's just not right uh, to go around without uh, evidence to establish it, claiming that somebody is perjuring themselves and lying and being intentionally dishonest. Those are claims that are well beyond, oh, you made a mistake or your memory's failed you or, uh, you know, all of those human frailties. Yes. Uh, and the Court of Appeal found that she persisted in making those unfounded claims, both in her written argument uh, and in her oral argument, 
Uh, and uh, those kind of claims, when they are unsupported, uh, is the kind of reprehensible conduct um, which is deserving of uh, rebuke. <laughs> and so, as a result of conducting yourself in that way, uh, the Court of Appeal ordered special costs, which will be much higher than the ordinary costs that would flow if you uh, sue somebody or appeal a decision and lose. And so the, the message uh, for people is this, right? Don't make those kind of serious allegations about um, other individuals unless you've got real evidence to support them, right? Human, ma- human memory is fallible. People make mistakes, right? People, you know, have different memories of whether things got written on whiteboards or where yeah. the ballot went when the water spilled. But those kind of things are not ordinarily an indication that people are perjuring themselves or intentionally lying. Uh, those are just uh, the normal human experience, right? N- none yes. of us are video cameras. We're all doing our best and are, uh, you know, fallible. Uh, and we ought not to, without very good uh, evidence to support it, uh, start alleging that other people are perjuring themselves and intentionally lying and uh, engaged in that sort of really serious conduct uh, unless you've got good evidence to support it. And if you do so, uh, you can expect to get the kind of rebuke that the uh, Court of Appeal handed out here, and you're going to pay for it. Always a welcome guest during the second half of our second hour on a Thursday here at CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan, legally speaking, thank you so much for your time as always. Thank you. I always enjoy it. Stay safe and have a great day. Yeah, you too. Talk to you next week. Bye now. Bye-bye.